Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week. I really trust you're joining in every week as we continue this study on the book of Judges. I know we are reviewing quite a bit, but it's difficult from week to week sometimes to remember you know, some of the things that we've shared. One of the things I absolutely love about doing television is that I'm not in a setting like I am when I'm traveling where I only got two or three services to share and I can't really unpack a whole lot. But if you watch these programs week after week, you're going to hear me unpack some things detailed that I, I know, normally am not able to exhaustively pursue. Now, we began five weeks ago on this series on the book of Judges. And what we started to show you is that every book of the Bible, of course, is written from the perspective of usually the first verse is key to it. It's like the key to the, your house. It's somewhere near the door. The book of Joshua opens by saying, Now Moses, my servant, is dead. Arise now, Joshua, and take the people into the land. Whether you know it or not, the word Joshua there is the Hebrew name Yeshua. It is the English word we translate Jesus. So the book of Joshua is about moving from Moses, Old Covenant, to Joshua, Jesus, New Covenant. And there are powerful pictures that are in that incredible book of Joshua. I'm not going to go back and talk about it much. The book of Judges opens by saying, now after the death of Joshua. So when th that, that really was key to me is that now after the death of Joshua, say it another way, now after the death of Yeshua, after the death of Jesus, and man, all of a sudden when I thought about that, I thought, now after the death of Jesus, and I thought, started thinking about the New Testament, I was thinking, now after the death of Jesus, He handed the kingdom over to 12 apostles, and He said, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, I think there are 12 judges in the book of Judges. And sure enough, there are 12 judges in the book of Judges who execute a judgment. And the more I studied these judges in the book of Judges, the more I realized, man, these all picture something having to do with the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so you've probably never heard anybody teach, perhaps, New Covenant from the book of Judges, but you're going to hear somebody teach them over the next several weeks because we're going to unpack some of these week by week. We probably won't cover all of them, but I'm going to hit some of the highlights of many of these judges. And we'll see things like Gideon, who threshed wheat, hiding it under the wine press. Wheat is an icon to me or a symbol of the death of Christ, except a corn of wheat fall on the earth and die, it abides alone. Jesus was that corn of wheat. He's also uh, hiding it under the wine press. That speaks to me of bread and wine. Melchizedek brings forth bread and wine. Jesus sat at the table with the disciples in the inauguration of the new covenant, and he says he brings forth bread and wine. This is my body. It was broken for you. This wine is the my blood of the new covenant. In other words, all of these are symbols of something Jesus did in His redemptive work concerning uh, these judges. Now, once again, without taking a long time to review, 
Psalm 149 is some key verses. And I think I will uh, go over there because I'm going to go uh, over into uh, talk about, I'm going to talk about Ehud, I think, in this next segment, if I can get to him. But in the book of Psalms, chapter number, let me, let me go back here and find my books here. Uh, in Psalm chapter number 149, it says this, it says, Sing unto the Lord a new song. That to me is the new song, is the new song of the new covenant. When you see in the scriptures, when God says through Isaiah, Behold, I do a new thing. The new thing is not the newest revival coming down the pike or how you're going to change the decoration in your church. The new thing God did was the new covenant, and everything new came from that new covenant, new tongues, a new nature, a new creation, a new Jerusalem, a new uh, uh, heaven and a new earth, uh, Him making all things new. All of that flows out of this new covenant. So he says, praise you, the Lord singing the Lord a new song. He's praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel, re let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Now I've already covered this in prior segments, but Zion again is another symbol of new covenant. You say, how is that, Dr. House? Well, Hebrews, the 12th chapter says, for you did not come to blackness and darkness. You didn't come to fear and trembling. You didn't come to a God who says, stay away. You didn't come to the mount that says, if you touch the edge of the mountain, you'll be thrust through with the dark. That mountain was Mount Sinai where the law was given. But then he stops there and he says, but you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, and you've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. You've come to a feastal gathering of angels. You have come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So Zion is symbolizing, again, new covenant. So everything about this psalm is pointing to a new covenant. He said, let them praise His name with the dance. Let them sing praises to Him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. To sing aloud on their beds to me symbolizes the fact that they are in the posture of rest. Everything about this is screaming new covenant. And it goes on to say, let the high praises of God be in their mouth. Now this is the water I want to get because this is where I'm going to go today. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. A two-edged sword. I want you to keep that in your mind. In their hands to execute vengeance on the nations, punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron, and to execute on them the, the written judgment. This honor have all of His saints. Now, I once again don't want to look at this like we are calling down fire from heaven on these kings and we are calling down uh, punishment on these nobles like we're looking at individuals. I want to look at it from a new covenant perspective and say that there's a judgment that took place on Calvary's cross where Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And in the context of that, uh, the word men is, not, is in italics, which means it's not in the original language. He's really talking about drawing all judgment into himself. Now, I believe men are involved in that because he was judged not just for me, but as me. But what I think, when I think about executing the written judgment, is that there was a judgment in my favor. I've been declared not guilty. I've been declared delivered, whole, saved, forgiven. And to execute, in other words, it's like winning a court case where the judge says to the plaintiff, and if you're the plaintiff and the judge says, 
the, the, the judgment is in favor of the plaintiff, uh, that's good news. That means I won something. But if you don't execute or go cash the check of the lawsuit you won, or if you don't redeem or go get what was paid for, in other words, if you don't believe it enough to act on the judgment that was written, it means absolutely nothing. So I believe that these principalities and powers and these kings and these nobles are governing thought patterns. When I think about principalities and powers, I'm not always thinking about demonic spirits. I'm talking about principles and ideas and concepts that lift themselves against the knowledge of God. They are the bales or the images or the idolatry in the chambers of, watch this word, imagination. Because the word imagination has in it, with it, the word image. Pulling down uh, strongholds, getting uh, every high thing that lifts itself against the knowledge of God, having our our our, our conscience even purged, uh, and and you know he puts blood on our conscience in the book of Hebrews, not so we don't feel bad about bad things we've done, but so that we're not afraid to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith that He's not going to reject me, but says, "Come on in, call upon my lap." But He has given to the saints. You know, I was thinking this morning, there, you can't work for righteousness, but there are works of righteousness. In other words, once you realize that you are the righteousness of God, Paul talked about, I labor more than you all, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. There's a grace on our lives, not to work for righteousness or God's approval, but to work from an acts of righteousness in distributing and executing the judgment written. See, I think one of the biggest mistakes on the planet is we've made the gospel about how I can get from here to there rather than about how I can get what's happening there to operate here where God wants to bring His new creation project into the planet and make all things new. And so everything we do to that end and executing that judgment written is we are expanding territory. We need, help us Holy Ghost, to get a kingdom mindset where Jesus says, come on, go into all the world, preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, because when you do that, the kingdom of God is come unto you. And when we do that, we are executing the judgment written. Now, I grant you, I'm not seeing that on a level that I want to see it uh, yet fully manifested. But nevertheless, start somewhere. Because this book of Judges is not just talking to glow-in-the-dark preachers. He's talking to ordinary people who are farmers. They are nobodies. They are uh, uh, all of them, every one of them in this book of Judges. What I love about this is they are all broken humans, people who have problems that God simply graces them and starts to move on them and uses them to bring a mighty deliverance to the people. So Psalm 149 says to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all, all his saints, not glow-in-the-dark preachers, not just great evangelists. I think we must lose this mentality that we're waiting on some grand leader to come like he's special beyond what I am. Now I know there's giftings that are in different people, but the body of Christ needs to learn how to function because God began to raise up ordinary people after the death of Joshua. After the death of Jesus, He's handed us a whole lot of stuff. There was a judgment that was in our favor. Sin, sickness, poverty, and death have all been defeated at the cross. We need to execute that judgment. 
And I thought the other day I was sitting on my porch and I just made a little Instagram post. And I said, you know what? I said, you know, we resist sin and we overcome sin, but I never thought of it like this. Maybe we need to resist sickness just like we resist sin. Say, not today, devil. Not today, sickness. None of these diseases will come upon me because they were laid on Jesus at the cross by whose stripes you were healed. Maybe I need to resist poverty. I know there's a lot of preaching against you know, prosperity preaching, but I'd rather preach prosperity than I would poverty because poverty was under the curse. Now, I know there's been a lot of abuses to that, and I, I don't make any apologies for that, but if you watch my program, we spend very little time trying to raise money, but we do need your help. But nevertheless, God's faithful to supply but I know people have abused that. But nevertheless, I believe we need to resist poverty in our lives. I believe we need to resist death. I've really begun to speak over my body and start talking to myself differently. I'm really trying to change my own words over myself, talking about, you know, getting older and this is supposed to happen as you get older. No, no, no. I'm renewing my youth like the eagles. As a matter of fact, I got a prophetic word about that this week in conference that I was like an eagle that was uh, being regenerated and rejuvenated. I've received that. I received that. And I believe we need to execute that judgment written. Now, with that being said, let's go back here then into the book of Judges, and we're going to probably go on over into uh, chapter number three. There was, a, it, it says, chapter three starts out by saying, Now, these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught how to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, there was five lords of the Philistines. Now, let me just tell you that God left them here to test them because they refused to drive them out. So I'm going to say this to you. What we refuse to drive out of enemies that we've been redeemed from, what we leave in the land, our children in the next generation are going to have to deal with. They're going to have to fight battles that we have refused to fight in our generation. I, I really get concerned sometimes, and yet at the same time, I know God's faithful with the generation 40 years and, and younger. I see a real move of God happening among them right now. But i got to tell you, man, there's some stuff that I really get concerned about as I watch and I see for instance, church attendance being down and people having a nonchalant idea about whether they ought to go. We, we, we teach our kids how to play and we forget to teach them how to pray. I mean, used to be when I was growing up, you didn't have sports practices on Wednesday night and you didn't have them on Sunday because that was church night. Now they have games on Sunday morning when folk ought to at least give God that Sunday morning. And most churchgoers thank their members when they show up twice a month in the house of God. Let me tell you something. Even Jesus, the Bible said, and he went to the temple as was his custom. So Jesus had a custom. If Jesus had a custom of going to the house of God, maybe it ought to be a good thing to give God some kind of a priority, at least on Sunday, and take your family to the house of God. But see, the things we don't defeat in our generation that we allow to live, our children will have to face them. And that's on so many different levels. And so it says in verse 5, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. See, what happens is, is what happens is they started to blend with the people of those lands. And the first thing you know, 
they're drawing them away. I, you know, I've seen that so many times, even in church. You know, I, I look at some uh, a lot of families that I know, and I think of people who've been raised in the house of God, and you know, love God, serve Jesus on worship teams. All, all of a sudden, man, they get in their teenage years and up towards their marrying years, and they find some boy. And he shows up at church long enough to get married to him, and then he never shows up again. And first thing you know, he's drawn them out because somehow we think we can change them. Let me tell you, make some choices based on the fact that I think God wants us to choose them that are believers. Because see, what happens is, is you get drawn into their situations. And I think sometimes even as we listen to all kinds of different ideas and concepts, it, I find it watering down the gospel. You know, the Scripture says this, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So I said to God one day when I was looking at that Scripture, How do you reprove the unfruitful works of darkness? He said, Have no fellowship with them. Stop supporting it. Because what you don't support goes away. That means your local church. It also means your, uh, whatever you consider to be sin. If you don't support it, it will go away. The reason there's some of the things that are thriving in our nation is because somebody somewhere is supporting it. And when you support it, you're giving your power to that nation. And first thing you know, it brings what we see here in the book of Judges, a mixture until God would raise up judges. Now, I already talked about Othniel because he was Caleb's younger brother. But when you're going down through here, the second guy, if you, if you want to go back and look at the Othniel one, I think I dealt with it in the first four videos on this subject. But the next guy that comes up and says, Ehud, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is verse 12, Judges chapter 3. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon, and Amalek went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of the Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gero, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. Watch this. It was double-edged and a cubit in length. Remember Psalm 149? A two-edged sword in their hands. Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged, a cubit, and a length, and fastened it under his clothes and on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> now if the Bible say you fat, you fat. And so the Bible said this guy was a very fat man. And when he had finished when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, "I have a secret message for you, O king." And he said, "Keep silence." And all who attended him went out from him. So he had came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly, even to the hilt, went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails, our King James says, until the dirt came out. 
Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look to their, their surprise. The doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sirah. And it happened that when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And then he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies into your hands in and the Moabs into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Now let me just talk about Eglon here because we have a few minutes left. Or let's talk about Ehud. Ehud, first of all, was a left-handed man. He was a Benjamite. The first thing that hits my mind about Ehud is he had an understanding. Remember, these are pictures of new covenant realities. He had an understanding of the Pauline revelation. What did Paul tell us in Philippians 3? He said he was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin, and they were left-handed. So a revelation of the Pauline gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then we see not only is he left-handed and a Benjamite, I think when I think about what tribe would I be, I think I'd be a Benjamite because I believe in the Pauline revelation. I think I preach the finished work of Jesus. But I also think when I think about the two-edged dagger, I think about the, the in Hebrews the fourth chapter, it says, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. But the context of that is it's not just any word. It's the word that flows from rest. That's the context of Hebrews 4. The word that flows from the finished work is sharp. It's life-giving. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides asunder between soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. Neither is there anything that's not naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Yet in the moment when our heart is revealed, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now watch this, because this Eglon to me, who the Bible said was a very fat man, speaks to me, first of all, of an obese religious system that's heavy with flesh. There are so many applications that we could make concerning Eglon. Perhaps it's even the areas of excess that are in our own lives where we are heavy with flesh and God wants to deal with some things that are enemies that we have allowed to live inside of the borders of our land that have no right to live there that become oppressive. Maybe they are habits. Maybe they are addictions. Maybe they are problems that you've had in your life for years and years. It is where you are heavy with flesh. And there's a two-edged sword, the Word of God, that you have to thrust into this obese system or this obese problems in your life, these areas of excess in your life, until the dirt comes out. And uh, I know I don't have a lot of time here, but when I first started preaching grace, let me tell you how this works. When I first started preaching grace and finished work, people started testing the waters of freedom. And man, I started dealing with a lot of a lot of mess. I'll call it the dirt started coming out. And, and, and so I said, Lord, am I preaching something that's causing people to sin? And the Lord said to me, 
There's no more sin in the grace camp than there is in the law camp. It's just that they don't have to hide it anymore. But what happens in the climate of freedom and in the climate of rest, Hebrews 4 says that the word that flows from rest will discern between the thought and the intent of the heart. So what happens is your heart is revealed in the climate of freedom because what's really in your heart comes out. Because what law has made us do is conform and hide our problems rather than address them and get them out. It's messy. Sometimes it stinks when the dirt comes out. But I believe that as I've traveled the nations for 44 years, people everywhere I go are broken in some way or the other. And the word that flows from rest will reveal what's in your heart. Not so you can act on it, but so that once your heart is revealed, then you can come boldly to a throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. And it's there that you're going to find a faithful high priest who's touched with the feelings of your infirmities and that's able to succor us in the time of trouble or temptation because he was tempted in like manner, yet without sin, so that he is able to succor us or sustain us in that moment when what's in our heart is revealed. And so if the Spirit of God begins to reveal something in your heart, it's like this book of Judges. It is God, even in the climate of the new covenant, saying, I don't want these excesses in your life that are oppressors like Midian. Things you are addicted to. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they'd been in bondage for hundreds of years, and their first stop is the wilderness of sin. That's not an accident. Why is that? Because they're testing the waters of freedom. But the waters, at there at the waters, the water got bitter. In other words, when you allow these things that he's after in our lives to continue, it causes pain in our lives. And God is trying to bring us into a land that flows with milk and honey, that upon these things like, like England, this obese uh, system of religion, I believe God is in the process of putting a two-edged dagger, and our churches are changing, ladies and gentlemen. The dirt's coming out. And if you watch TV and you see all the stuff that's happening, even among some of these places where, uh, you know, uh, uh, that you see these documentaries, I'm not trying to put anybody down because I'm going to tell you everybody's broken from the pulpit to the door. I don't know why it is that people rejoice over leaders when they fall. Because I think what happens is they think, well, thank God somebody's as messed up as I am. And I think that's why we rejoice over falling leaders. But I think that what happens is, is that we have had to live in a place where we've had to hide our problems rather than be able to come to God and let Him put this dagger in until the dirt comes out. The word that flows from rest. And so Ehud is a powerful picture of executing the judgment of the two-edged sword that goes in until it sinks around the fat and the dirt comes out and true deliverance comes from our oppressions. We're about to run out of time. If you uh, would like to sow a seed into this ministry, we de definitely need your help. The easiest way to do that is to go to our website, and there's a link there which you can give through our PayPal portal. You can give through credit card or debit card. You can even set up a monthly debit if you'd like to be a monthly partner. You can also send a check or money order to the address that will come on the screen to Lynn House Ministries. You can also pick up the phone and call, and someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, 
uh, please leave a message and someone from my team will return your phone call. Join in again next week as we continue this series. God bless you. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.